Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <coughs> we'll look at the first 11 verses uh, today, which we'll read in a moment. <coughs> you know, keeping the most important things, the most important things, is one of the great challenges of our life. And nowhere is that more true than in relationship to our faith. It is amazing how quickly churches get bogged down in pettiness. It is amazing how soon the beauty of the gospel gets lost in religious traditions. It is amazing how often people who grew up in church somehow miss the point of it all. So weekends like this holiday weekend are invaluable for us. As we walk through the events of Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and now Easter Sunday, we are driven back to the most important things about our faith. In that spirit, I want to direct your attention back to the basics of the gospel. I know you've heard it before. You probably wouldn't be in church if you hadn't heard this before. But have you grasped the implications of what we celebrate this morning. Let's think about that for a few moments. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11, let me read. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For I received... For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he has appeared, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then... It was I or they. This is what we preach, and this is what you believed. I'd like for us to um, boil that down to three truths this morning that I think we ought to learn from uh, this passage. The first is this. God has good news for you. God has good news for you. In verse 1 we read, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news. And that translation is accurate, but it doesn't really convey the the punch of that statement. I remind you is just not quite uh, potent enough. It would be better to say, I declare to you, or I proclaim to you the gospel. Uh, the, The theologian Charles Hodge 
said the apostle Paul used a word which means literally, I make known to you as though you had never heard it before, the gospel. I remember one of my seminary professors challenging us with the difference between describing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. That's what I hope to do this morning, to proclaim to you that God has good news for you. You see, it's possible to grow up in this country, to grow up in this community, to grow up in this church, and hear all about Christianity. Hear the stories of the Bible, hear the teaching of Jesus, learn to distinguish Christian behavior from non-Christian behavior, know the facts of the gospel, and even be trained and encouraged to live a good, moral, Christian life. It's possible to know all that and do all that and yet never really become a Christian. It's possible to pursue Christian living with sincerity, but not actually be a Christian. Martin Luther was like that. He tried very hard to live as a Christian. He tried so hard, he was so serious about it, he became a monk, deprived himself of much of life. He became a church teacher. But inside himself, he never knew if he had done enough. And so he lived in an anguished fear and anger against God, who he could never seem to please well enough. Sound familiar? Perhaps you wonder if beside, behind the facade of your Christianity, you have really done enough. And you wonder about the dark side of your heart, which you know and no one else knows, but God knows. How will God deal with you on Judgment Day? Well, this morning I'm here to tell you God has good news for you. He knows our Christian face is only skin deep. He knows only too well what's going on inside of our hearts. He knows that try as you may, you will never be good enough to stand unashamed before the Lord in his glory. You will never be able to face dying and judgment without terrifying fear. In fact, that paralyzing fear of death and judgment is one of the indicators of your needy soul. God knows all those things. But I have good news. God has acted to deliver you. God has done for you what you could never do for yourself. To remove your sinful past to make you clean and whole before him right now and forever. This is the clear declaration of verses 3 and 4. First, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. God the Holy One never looks the other way at sin. He never winks at sin. That would make him part of a conspiracy of silence to just act like it didn't exist. He doesn't do that. That would compromise his holiness. Our sin will never be excused. Never be excused. It must be judged and punished. 
and none of us can withstand God's judgment. But out of his love for us, God sent his son Jesus into the world. And this Jesus willingly endured the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the human race. He was crucified after being, after being pronounced not guilty at least three times. He was crucified on a Roman cross just outside the city of Jerusalem. But as Jesus died on the cross, much more than a great miscarriage of human justice was taking place. At the cross, God punished Jesus for the sins of his human creatures. God poured out his judgment day anger at sin, poured it out on Jesus until God's justice was satisfied that the debt had been paid. On the cross, Jesus took, on the cross, God took that eternity in hell, which we deserve, and compressed it down into three hours of terrifyingly intense wrath and executed that judgment on Jesus as if he were guilty as sin. The father turned his back on him because of the filth, our filth, which he carried. And from the cross, Jesus cried out in agony of soul, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And the earth shook. And the sky turned dark at noon till three. As God poured out his wrath on his son. Until the debt was paid. And Jesus cried out in a loud voice, It's finished. Finished. He's the word to tell us die. It's used in secular documents to say, Paid in full. As a result of Jesus' submission to God's judgment, God can now deal with us in love without any impediment of sin in the way. He can extend his favor to us without compromising his holy abhorrence at our sin. He can now forgive us and restore us and join himself to us in fellowship and give us a new heart and put his spirit inside of us. He can do all of that without compromising his justice for there's no sin left pending, none on the account. Jesus paid it all. That's what I mean. God has good news for you. You who deserve to go to hell, in Jesus, you go free. You who have only known estrangement from God all your life, in Jesus, you are reconciled. Better yet, you're adopted into his family as his son or daughter. You have carried around the crippling burden of guilt that buckles your knees because of Jesus who can lay it down at the cross. He already paid for it. Now perhaps that sounds too good to be true. We've heard a lot of claims or wonderful things that didn't pan out. How would we know whether this is all true or not? Whether Jesus really did this or not? 
Well, I've got more good news for you. There in verse 3 and 4 again. On the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. You see it there in verse 4? He was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But this claim is not just asserted, and then the author moves on to other things. No evidence is given for this because it's such an outlandish claim that someone was raised from the dead. How would you prove someone's raised from the dead? You've never seen anyone raised from the dead. I've never seen anyone raised from the dead. We all know that somebody cannot be raised from the dead. How would you possibly prove if God did a once in a, in, in, in a lifetime thing? How would we prove it? Well, the same way we prove things in a court of law to this day. Eyewitness testimony. Not just one eyewitness where one person might have been in a, some state of grief or some religious ecstasy and maybe thought he saw someone that looked like Jesus and, and perhaps it was a hallucination or something. That wouldn't be very solid evidence. Oh no, but that's not what we have here. We have a whole list of eyewitnesses given here. Let me just go down the list. Peter. Peter was not a guy given to uh, flights of mysterious uh, kinds of uh, mental things. He was a hard-nosed fisherman. And he knew Jesus very well. He knew what he looked like. Then the twelve. The twelve saw Jesus repeatedly, not just once, lots of times over a period of 40 days. These were men who lived and walked with Jesus for three years. They knew him. They, they would not be deceived by a fraud. And then there's a group of over 500 people who saw Jesus alive at the same time. And, and Paul says, most of them are still alive. What he is saying by implication is, if you don't believe it, go check it out. They're still around. A few of them have died, but mostly they're still here. 500 witnesses. Next we read that Jesus appeared to James and to the other apostles. Do you know who James is? That's Jesus' half-brother, son of Joseph and Mary. James was, did not believe in Jesus. When Jesus was a young man, James was growing up. He scoffed at Jesus. He mocked Jesus. He didn't, he didn't believe. Something changed his mind. He came to believe. In fact, you know what he came to believe? He came to be the head of the church in Jerusalem. Then again, I guess seeing Jesus alive after you had seen him dead and buried might change your mind, mightn't it? And finally, Paul says, I saw the Lord myself. Not as the others had seen him before his ascension, Paul met Jesus face to glorious face on the road to Damascus, and Paul was never the same. After that, he was radically changed. Make no mistake, God is not asking you to throw away your brains to believe the gospel. He is asking you to believe something you've never seen, but he's given us lots of evidence. Jesus was raised on the third day, and he was seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses in numerous situations and numerous times. So, like Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection has profound implications. By raising Jesus from the dead, God authenticated his identity as the Son of God. By raising Jesus from the dead, God showed his approval of Jesus' claims that he came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was not lying. And most importantly, by raising Jesus from the dead, God demonstrated 
that the death of Jesus was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. God showed that he is satisfied that sin and death and hell have been overcome by Jesus. How do we know? Because God raised him from the dead as proof. So do you understand what you just heard? This is the answer to the deepest need of your life, your alienation from God. This morning God calls you to abandon all your confidence that you might have in your own schemes and your own things you've worked out and how you are going to get God's favor, how you're going to twist his arm to make him deal with you well in spite of all your failures. This morning God calls you to abandon all of that and cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus. He calls you to trust, hope, put confidence in what Jesus has done, not what you are doing, to acknowledge his claim on your life, and to turning your back on all other hopes, follow him. And God promises, he promises, that one who comes to Jesus on those terms will not be turned away. God has good news for you this Easter morning. Now you say, I know all that already. I believe that for years. Well, then there's a second lesson from this text that you need to learn, and that's this. You never outgrow this gospel. You never outgrow this gospel. Did you ever look back at any of your old uh, school textbooks? It's a hoot. You... Uh, Look at them and you say, wow, this stuff, some of this stuff is so obsolete. Some of, some of this information is useless now. What, what we thought we knew has often proven to not be so. I heard some, somewhere that in just five years, 50% of medical knowledge has changed. I don't know if that's true. That's somebody's assessment. Things change. Understanding changes. But not the gospel. You never outgrow the gospel. Though it may be the first Christian truth you ever learned, you never outgrow it. You never get beyond it. You never surpass it. You never move on to a higher grade. This is what we have, the gospel. Now see, that's what was happening in the church of Corinth as the Apostle Paul wrote to them in this book of the New Testament. Paul had proclaimed the gospel to them and they believed it. And that's good. But then they began to think that they had become a bit too sophisticated to believe such things. The resurrection of the dead, we're way too sophisticated to believe in that. They thought they had outgrown the gospel. Sound familiar? Paul says, oh no, no. Verse 1, this gospel is what I preached. Verse 3, this gospel is what I received from the Lord and passed on to you. This gospel is what God promised in the scriptures. Verse 5, 8, this gospel is what actually happened. This gospel is what is attested to you by eyewitness accounts. Verse 11, this gospel is what all the apostles preach in all the churches. You don't outgrow the gospel. It does not change. You do not graduate from it. So when I tell you this good news about Jesus is the Christian faith. Don't settle for some cheap imitation made to look like Christianity. It's not all the same, you know. 
many things are being substituted for the gospel these days until it's sometimes hard to recognize true Christianity in the midst of all the cheap imitations. Some want to turn Christianity into a political agenda. People on the political right want to do that. People on the political left want to do that. But they're wrong. Some people want to reduce Christianity to a system, reduce Christianity to a system of morality. Or, or worse, a, a legalistic lifestyle. But they're wrong. Some people want to turn Christianity into a big marketing bonanza for, to, to get the religious buyers. But they're wrong. Some people want to strip Christianity of its miracles, its supernatural character. They feel uncomfortable with the idea of God intervening in human history. That, 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 that doesn't seem sophisticated to them. And they are more wrong than anyone. Or they may still continue to call themselves Christians. And they may, may meet in buildings with steeples on the top. But there is no such faith. No such place to stand. We never outgrow the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the faith delivered once for all to the saints. Similarly, in our practice, we never outgrow, not just in what we believe, but in our practice, we never outgrow the gospel. I've often observed that in our particular circles of, uh, of, of church, the church, our own little line of church tradition, that to people, well, we believe the gospel, and we believe that you're saved by grace, but sometimes in practice it kind of comes out that we're saved by grace, but then God kind of puts us on our own, and we really uh, live by our ability to keep the law well. Nobody says that. But that's the attitude that develops sometimes. And the Bible could not disagree more. In these first two verses, it's instructive to look at um, the kind of action, the kind of events that are involved here, which we get from a, a little bit more technical thing about the Greek tenses in the language it was written, which I know you don't care about that, but le let me just explain the impact of that. It says we receive the gospel. That's a Greek heiress tense. That's a point in time in the past, something happened. We received the gospel. Then it says we took our stand on the gospel. That's a Greek perfect tense. That means something that happened in the past but continues to have continuing implication from then on. And then it says, we are saved by the gospel. That's a present tense, which talks about something that continuously goes on and on in the present time and doesn't stop. In other words, by this gospel, you are continually being saved. You see, you see faith in Jesus may have a radical starting point, but the practice of the gospel is a continuing reality. So the Spirit says in, an, in another place, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in him. Same way. So how did we receive Jesus? Well, we realized that we could not save ourselves, that he loved us enough to send his son to pay for our sins. We abandoned our other hopes, repented of, of believing in other things, and turned to follow Jesus and, and uh, uh, cast ourselves on his mercy, asking him to save us. And he does save us. Repentance from sin and self and faith in Jesus. That's how we're saved. And that's how we live as Christians. Repentance and faith. 
Peter says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. But as we grow in the knowledge of Jesus and get to know him better, a couple of things happen to us. First of all, we see that we are more sinful than we ever dreamed we were. We see that sin permeates us all the way down to our toenails. We see that we really can trust ourselves less and less. We see that we need to repent more deeply than we ever dreamed. We learn we must abandon selfish interests more completely. Selfish interests which we once were not even aware of. We learn that inside of us are all kinds of false strategies to somehow work it out to depend on ourselves and and coerce God into giving us what we want. All of which are false gospels we repent of. Every day there are more things to repent of as we see the Savior more and see ourselves more. But at the same time, the more we know Jesus, the more we know his grace. And the more that we dare to trust him. Because of his grace, we dare to open up and uncover those sinful things because we know that he forgives us. By grace, we dare to peel another layer of self-centeredness away, believing that his grace is enough for that too. Because of his grace, we dare to trust him, not just to forgive our sins, but for our whole life. Before long, we find he's so faithful that we can do anything he commands us and trust him for the results. Even when we know he asks us to do things that we can't pull off, we can begin to do them because we know he will not drop us. We can trust him. You see, our whole life as a Christian is what? Repentance and faith. That's gospel living. We're free to live that way because of his grace. We're no longer trying to earn his favor. We're simply trusting what he promised, trusting what Christ already accomplished for us and learning to live it out, walking by faith, abandoning anything else but him, resting in him alone. We never outgrow the gospel. Well, finally, one more thing briefly, third truth. Such grace produces gratitude. Grace produces gratitude. Let me tell you a little preacher secret here, since we're on this subject this morning. Did you know it's easier to preach bad news than it is to preach good news? It's easier to tell people all the things wrong with them than it is to tell people they are forgiven by God's grace. Now, how can that be? It seems backwards. Well, as a pastor, you get to know people. You get to know where people struggle, the deficiencies in their lives, and people are aware of those too. And so there's always lots to preach against. And God's people appreciate if you tell it like it is. They'll thank you, even if you stepped on their toes a little bit, for being bold enough and courageous enough to call sin, sin. Ah, but if you preach about grace and forgiveness all the time, people are going to think they're getting away with their sin. 
You can't let people think they're going to get away with it. I mean, who's going to change if you only preach good news? Uh, pe people are going to get lazy about their Christian faith, right? It's easier to hammer people than it is to preach grace. Well, it would seem that that would make sense, but the, God says it's actually the other way around. And we see that in Paul's testimony here in these last few verses. Let me read again verses 9 and 10. Paul's writing. He says, I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul says, when I understood the magnitude of God's grace, it produced in me a gratitude that drove me to serve Christ. So that I worked harder than anyone. Not out of servile fear, but out of love for what he had done for me. And make no mistake, Paul's, God's grace to Paul was quite significant. He talks about persecuting Christ's church. Think about that for a moment. The Lord calls Christ's church his bride. In other words, the Lord, the, the Lord would say to Paul, you beat up my bride. You beat up my bride. You hauled her off to prison. And what response would you get from someone if you beat up his bride? Yet God was gracious to Paul. He forgave him for that. He received him into his church. He called him to, be, to, to, to serve and to proclaim the gospel. He gave him an eternal inheritance. That's grace. You beat up my bride. I'm not sure you're going to get that much grace. That's what God did for Paul. And the way God treated Paul, he treats you. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve. He has every right to, but he does not because of Jesus. He's full of grace. Desiring that we, out of gratitude, not guilt, not servile fear, out of gratitude, respond in faithful devotion. How different from the motivation that drives people in the world. Some people work for bosses who, who, who uh, they work out of fear of reprisal, the, the big stick, you know, if you don't shape up, he's going to hammer you. Some people work for uh, others out of uh, promise of advancement, the carrot dangled, if you just do a little more, try a little harder, produce a little more, there'll be an advancement or a pay raise. Some people negotiate arrangements, trading this for that, and I really want this a lot and I'll give you this, and you know, labor contracts, how that works. But God who is concerned not just with our actions, but with the attitudes of our heart. God moves us to love him and serve him with gratitude by loving us first and giving himself for us and continually lavishing grace on us. For God knows that grace produces 
gratitude. This Easter morning, I only want you to understand the most important thing. That radical, wonderful, incomprehensible gospel of grace. This is not just an incidental truth in the Christian faith. This is the faith. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried, dead. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead, according to the scriptures. So believe it. Don't just give mental assent to those facts, those little theological statements. Come to Jesus and seek his forgiveness. Receive forgiveness and grace. Then grow in it. Understand that you don't outgrow the gospel. You're going to live the rest of your life repenting of sin as you see it more and more and trusting him more and more and finding him more and more trustworthy. This is the nature of the Christian experience. And finally understand that through the gospel, God intends to change you. To dissolve your arrogant self-centeredness and fill you with love for Jesus. But he does not do that as you might expect. He does it by extending to you grace that you don't deserve. Again and again, unfathomable grace upon grace upon grace upon grace until your gratitude for his mercy overwhelms you. For grace produces gratitude. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the message of the gospel. Though we may know it well, may we live it better. May we not think it's a thing of the past to be put in a gospel track somewhere, but may we realize this is our life. This is all we have before you, Lord, is the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection in our place. So grant us grace to live it out. As we reflect on these things this Easter day, may we not just uh, let them blow away. May we take them deeply into our hearts and grow from your truth set before us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.